This week's guest in the podcast is Mark Bowman. Mark Bowman is a journalist who writes specifically for NME, among other publications, The Times, The Guardian, Shortlist and Uncut. We spoke about his early life growing up and how he got into the profession that he's in. We also spoke about his time at NME in great length and also writing books for various artists, Kanye West, Jay-Z, The Killers, Muse and Bon Iver. Also we touched on a famous interview he did with Keith Richards and then towards the end I asked him for some insight into who he thinks will be playing at Glastonbury 2022. At the end of the podcast he also picked his heroes to come for dinner. Hope you enjoy the podcast guys. Thanks again for listening and there'll be another one up very soon. Mark Bowman, people might know you for a journalist with NME, that's where I know you from, but you've worked for lots of other publications and you're a published author as well. So if we just go back to the start about where you grew up and how was um, school life, family life, and how did that shape you into becoming into the profession that you're in now? Well, um, I mean, I grew up... um... It's a bit weird having a, a surname like Beaumont and people kind of assume if you're a music journalist, that you're some sort of public schoolboy, and, uh, you know, you come from a life of privilege. But I grew up in, you know, one of the grottier council blocks in um, North London in Enfield. Mm-hmm. Um, a place that was, you'd, as a kid, you don't realise is a really, you know, you wouldn't really want to hang around there very much. Um, uh, so, yes, yeah, so I um, spent, a lot, spent a lot of time around Enfield, you know, very working class background. Um, and just, but just kind of really got into reading a lot. I mean, I kind of, uh, when I was six or seven, I kind of got into the Beatles and went and bought all the Beatles records. And kind of about the same time I started, um, just could devouring books. So I was writing, I mean, I kind of knew I wanted to be a writer from about the age of 10, 10 or 11, really. I thought I was going to write horror stories and, and become the next Stephen King. Right. Uh, but, uh, so, but that, uh, didn't really. Um, I didn't really end up going down that route. Um, so yeah, did lots of reading. I mean, I was, I was a teenager at school. I was literally the sort of guy that, um, you know, very, very insular. I'd spend a lot of time, my, all my weekends pretty much, you know, I wasn't really going out and playing football with people. I would literally spend a weekend sitting in reading a Shakespeare play mm-hmm. and then reading again the next day to make sure I didn't <laughs> miss anything. That, that's the sort of glue I was. Um, and listening to, incessantly listening to music and, doing a paper round and listening to music all the time. And yeah, I guess I was writing fiction. I started writing fiction when I was 16, properly. Right. I did a first, my first, I wrote, I finished my first novel at 18 and, you know, I've done six since then, but, you know, I started to do a rush of them. Mm-hmm. Sort of, what sort of time does that take up, writing a novel? Uh, it'd usually be about three years start to, start to finish in three drafts, but I was a lot quicker then. Um, I remember in my first summer holiday from university, um, I knocked out a novel in the space of like three months, which is unthinkable now. I mean, I've been writing, I'm writing one of the minute, I'm 50,000 words in, I must've been doing it for about four years, but that's because I've got so much other stuff on. Yeah. Um, so I was doing, I was doing quite a lot of that, you know, just basically sort of, you know, I was very sort of hiding in a bedroom and listening to music and writing. That's all, that's all I wanted to do. Obviously, you said you get out in the Beatles. Who else were you listening to? Yeah, this? Beatles from an early age. I mean, I, I think sort of the first thing that when I was very young, 
the first stuff that got me was like madness and, and a bit of the UK scar stuff. And then I go into the Beatles and then um, it, it, I found it difficult to just sort of find stuff that um, find outlets for things that interested me. Um, so a lot of the stuff I was listening to early on was a lot of stuff that my dad would play in the car. So I've got a kind of inbuilt, um, an inbuilt love of stuff like ELO and, and Peter Gabriel and Genesis and Supertramp and stuff like that. Stuff that's deeply rooted and actually comes in quite handy now that I, um, I, I do sort of day shifts at um, Uncut magazine doing, you know, when we do a prog issue, you know, it's, mm-hmm. I've got a bit of, uh, I've got a bit of background there. Um, and then it wasn't, it wasn't until probably the stuff I, when I started getting into stuff that really started changing my life, part of sort of post Beatles was, um, I don't know if you remember, I don't know if you're probably not old enough, but there was a program called The Chart Show um, that used to be on Saturday mornings. On ITV. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was kind of after the kids' programs and before the sport. And, um, and they'd have a, as you'll know, they had a, um, they'd revolve a chart every week. So mm-hmm. one week it'd be the dance chart, one, one week it'd be the indie chart, one week it'd be the rock chart. And I was never bothered about the dance and the rock charts particularly, but the indie chart, I was watching it one day and then like the number one song was Monkey Gone to Heaven by the Pixies. And that, t- I mean, literally it changed my life. I mean, I just couldn't, I've never, never seen anything, especially on a Saturday morning, mm. anything so evil coming out of my TV and just so completely enthralling. Yeah. And so yeah, I remember sort of going down to my rec- local record shop and buying the cassette of, of Doolittle and just being terrified of it a little bit, you know, just like I kind of felt as though I was buying into a cult and got sort of deeply into that yeah and then sort of hit university and I sort of um started seeing this girl who uh, would give me lots of tapes of all the baggy stuff this was probably sort of you know 1990 1991 92 something like that mm-hmm. and so I started sort of picking up stuff oh you know, um, uh, you know Carter USM and the wedding present and lots of baggy bands and teenage fan club and things like that um and then I started reading the NME, which, which was only sort of in maybe the second year of university, and realised that you could not only could you write, you could write about music, and you could, and there were all these people writing about music and going off jaunts around America doing it. That, <laughs> that's exactly what I want to do. So, uh, yeah, and that's that was kind of the start of of my obsession with needing to do this for a living. So, I take it you, if you were writing books and things, writing novels, so you would be excelling in English. What happened? Did you go to uni? Anything like that? Yeah, I went to, um, so I was, uh, did my main degree, I did English and American Literature at um, University of Kent, God bless it, um, in, down in Canterbury, uh, which was, I, I had a really good time. It was a, you know, a life-changing experience in terms of some kid who was not really a person and, you know, quite miserable mm-hmm. for most of his teenage years, suddenly finding sort of a, glo- a, a close circle of friends and very accepting people and some lovely people and just coming out of my shell an awful lot and being a person properly. Mm-hmm. Um, so that changed my life. And then, so, you know, in terms of, you know, you don't do an English degree, I'm expecting to get much of a you know, st- solid career out of it. Yeah. So I did that. And then I, um, I managed to get on a, a post-grad um, journalism course in Preston, University of Central Lancashire. Um, actually a trained professional journalist. <laughs> you know, okay. I can do shorthand and everything. Um, so I did that for a year, and then I'd spent probably since I started, since I realised I wanted to work for the enemy, I've been sending the enemy um, like live reviews and album reviews 
mm-hmm. probably every couple of months. And after two years of doing that, um, the melody maker got in touch with me actually, because I was sending it to the melody maker as well and said, do you want to do some writing for us? And so I got in touch with the enemy and said, I'd rather work for you. The melody maker want me. <laughs> Can I work for you? <laughs> and they said, yeah. So, um, so I was writing, I was writing reviews um, before I left the postgrad degree. So I was up in Preston. Really? And I think the enemy thought I was going to be their northern correspondent up, up in the northwest. Mm-hmm. But uh, didn't realise that in a few months' time I was coming back to London. Yeah, I mean, so the, and there I was. So I was straight out of my course. So what um, time are we talking about? year was us? So this would have been the first year I started. 1995 was when I first got published. Right. So right on the, the heart of Brat Pop. Yeah, I, I feel like I kind of missed a lot of it, to be honest with you. Yeah, well, it was 94 um, to 97. It was so... kind of the back end of Britpop. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was kind of, I really was a child of Britpop in terms of I really got into it, you know, as soon as Suede came along, you know, I had the Branson hair and I was, you know, um, you know, very much into the foppish side of, of Pulp and things like that and mm-hmm. um, a huge Blur fan. Um, so I, was, I really got deep into that stuff and... And it was kind of the peak of it for me, anyway, in terms of the uh, the peak of Britpop, I would say it would be about 94. So I kind of got the back end of it, which was interesting because it meant that, you know, early on in my career, I was going to do jobs with people, you know, bands that I really adored. You know, I did a week in Australia with Blur, mm-hmm. you know, which was phenomenal. You know, still one of the best jobs I've ever done. You know, when you, you know, how old was I, 23, 22, something like that, just sort of jumping around at the side of the stage oh, in Sydney, favourite bands, and and spent, and that was, the, those were the days when, you know, bands would really sort of accept you into their circle for a week, and so I slept all night drinking champagne with, with Alex, and it was the, was the life. That's what dreams have made it. Yeah, I mean, those were the days when we could, when that was what we could do. Um, so, yeah, so a lot of the bands I'd really admired and, and, Really got into in, a, in during the sort of peak of Britpop, where at that stage were, um, were were quite big, and so they were taking journalists all over the place, and 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 the papers had you know the uh, the enemy, everyone had written about them a lot already, so they, they liked the idea of new people writing about them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but yeah, it was kind of. But then I was kind of there just in time for the the kind of the lull and the post Oasis uh, influx of sort of fairly yeah. sort of stodgy guitar music and. There was still, you know, a lot of a lot of bands I enjoyed um, writing about, enjoyed going and seeing, and you know, you'd hang around with with you know people like Space and Manson and mm-hmm. Placebo and people like that. You know, so that was part of the era that I, by the time I was sort of writing cover features, it was very yeah, much because I think you know, I was sort of era. I kind of grew up with Britpop. I'd have been like fourteen in nineteen ninety four, but I think I was still. I think I was just finding music then, so it was kind of the bands after after that that kind of I got into. So like, I think the first band that I really liked was Embrace. Oh, good lads, good lads! I remember yeah. going to um, uh, they were recording a, a record in um, some sort of stately home somewhere, and they'd set up all their gear in the in the foyer of this in the entrance hall of this stately home, and they're recording the record in there. They invited loads of people down, and they did like a ghost tour of the basement. <laughs> that was really great. That uh, that it, they'd get about sort of twenty people on this um, 
uh, just sort of wandering through the various rooms in the basement and they were telling all these ghost stories about it. And then at one point they'd sort of turn off the lights and everyone would start screaming. It was, uh, yeah. yeah, no, good, good, good lad. Great kind of pioneers for that because nobody else was kind of doing that. They were, they were doing like the secret gigs and things. And even now they've got like a Patreon site that they're doing now where you pay so much mm. a month and you get extra tracks that nobody else gets and things like that. So they're, Quite a novel way of doing things. Obviously, the music industry is struggling. So yeah, they came along at an interesting time because it was, it was just when all that sort of post Oasis stuff was happening, and and uh, Britpop was definitely on on the slide. And I kind of find it annoying when people like Embrace get lumped in with Britpop because I mean, essentially they were kind of the big, you know this big anthemic music that came afterwards, and they were kind of you know a little bit overshadowed by by the Verve at that yeah. point. And I think that was a bit um, unfortunate for. Still did very well, and I'm, you know, you know, so, you know, great band, great guys. So, was NME then the first kind of paper magazine that you, you worked for? I mean, I've done various um, little bits for local uh, Northwest, um, you know, when you kind of, um, you know, discerning your dues, really, did a, a, a few a few bits of that. Um, I remember for the student paper, I went to... Um, I kind of tagged along with the, the music writer there to, to interview a band. The first time, first time I'd ever sort of sat down for a band interview. And um, I can't remember which band it was we were supposed to be interviewing. I think it was the, supposed to be the Bridewell Taxis or someone like that. Um, but we just walked into the room and we, we, we went and interviewed the wrong band. We went and interviewed, interviewed the support band instead. So we, we interviewed a band called Airhead, who no one had ever heard of. Um, and I just sort of, you know, I didn't have any questions. I sat there and watched the the, the girl who was writing about them do it. And that was my first, my first, very first experience I had as a music journalist. I interviewed the wrong band. So did you get were you in trouble for that? Or I mean, sometimes things like that work it better. <laughs> yeah, I think she probably got in trouble for it. But it was, it was luckily I didn't have the responsibility of that one. <laughs> so for the NME, obviously, what was your main task? With them, or did that kind of did your role change throughout? Because obviously the reviews, obviously you were sending in, but you did the the letters page that was predominantly yours as well, wasn't it? Um, no, well the letters page we shared around between everybody. It was um as a freelancer then. This is sort of late nineties. Um, you'd get to I mean you'd get to write all over the all over the mag really. That was kind of the, the point of it. Um. But in terms of responsibilities that I had, I mean, I was doing this, the gossip page for quite a while um, around that time. Um, that was kind of my my little corner. Um, but you know, for, for, for a difficult job because basically you sort of run, you ring around all the PRs to to um, ask ask if any of their acts had been arrested that week, and you know, if they didn't make something up for you, and you had to make it up yourself. So we kind of. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's a, a job of exaggeration, really, because you know bands going to gigs don't necessarily do anything particularly exciting. So you'd always have to jazz it up a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did that for a couple of years. Uh, yeah, in terms of my my niche there, I mean that was kind of it. I'd just do lots of lots of writing, and then went to the Melody Maker for about eighteen months because right. um, I got a job as staff writer. So um, so yeah, I was at the Melody Maker for the for the last eighteen months of his existence and. During that time, was asked to return to the enemy as staff writer at the, on on the day that the Million Maker folded. Really, so I was kind of fairly lucky to right. weave my way through that. 
So, see, in terms of interviews, would that be your idea or would the editor come to you and say, right, I want you to focus on this band? But what was, how did things like that work? It was, it was, I, I was always asked to, to, to do them. Um, a lot of, a lot of journalists, a lot of journalism in general is pitching for things and you come up with an idea and you pitch to an editor and the editor says yes or no. And, and it's all sort of dependent on how good the idea is, how exclusive it is that you only, you can do it. Um, and I, I got completely spoiled for many years and you completely never got any practice at doing that because I would always be asked if the editors at the enemy would always ring me up and ask me to do whatever they wanted. Um, so that's, that's kind of a part of my sort of, you know, initial journalist sort of self-training that I completely missed out at. And I'm right. still dreadfully pitching to this day because I've just been, you know, I've been lucky enough to not have to do it very much. You know, I just right. kind of, I have been asked, you know, I've been, you know, I've been, have work lobbed at me an awful lot. Mm. <laughs> so what are we talking like, um, like the big bands, like, so... Can you remember where you were? Obviously, you will be able to remember where you were like when the Strokes appeared in Britain. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, the Strokes appearing was was a seismic, really. In, yeah. In the I mean, we'd literally, we'd, we'd been through a couple of years of, of some pretty, you know, desperate straits in terms of what was going on in the British music world. It was either Lamp Basket or Travis, that's like, or the... Well, you had to much, yeah, it was like, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't a, I wasn't a huge um, uh, new metal fan, although they did provide some some fun trips. You know, you'd go to America with the new new metal bands, and that was fun. Um, and then in the UK, it was very much sort of people sitting down and playing acoustic guitars, and here comes Star Sailor, and mm-hmm. and uh, not really, you know, it was few and far between that you'd find a, a a band to be really excited about. And then. Uh, I mean, the strokes came down, like, you know, it was like a meteorite, really. I mean, it, you know, we were dancing on the tables yeah. um, in the office and we it really, it really was year zero for us. And then someone came up with a brilliant idea of, um, of doing the, uh, you know, We Love New York issue and exploring all of the, mm-hmm. what was happening in New York, which we hadn't even thought about doing for so many years. It was all just, okay, America's just new metal. We don't want to bother with that. Um, you know, we'll try and find something in the UK and we're sort of scrabbling around for anything good in the UK. And then, oh, hang on, look, all this stuff is happening in New York. What a great idea. Let's focus on that. And all these yeah. great bands emerged. And then a, a huge amount of great bands in the UK emerged inspired by that. And on the back of that, um, yeah. it really made everything really. And it was, it really was a, you know, it gets, a, it has been getting quite a, a harsh time of it um, from the people that don't really like guitar music, but it was it was brilliant. I mean, it was you know fantastic new songs coming every other day. It oh, was, there was so much, was so fun. much kind of everything was just different. When it everything was just mere edgier, mere punkier, and it just every everything looked cool. Everything had a cool haircut. Yeah, and um, it was also different as well. I mean, there was, there was no sort of defining thread through it all. Other than you know, you'd, mm. you'd get stuff coming. You know, Franz Ferdinand coming from Glasgow, you've got Kasabian coming from the Midlands, you've got um, a million bands coming out of Leeds and, and all this stuff kicking off all the secret gigs and guerrilla stuff and around the Libertines in London. I mean, it was, you know, and then all the bands that don't fit in with all of that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Block in with that. Um, so, yeah, there was, um, yeah, it was, it was a, 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 an embarrassment of riches, really, in terms of 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I figured, and we, and we did really throw ourselves into it um, within the NMA. Yeah. I was um, listening to a podcast, I can't remember what podcast it was, but it was with Connor McNicholas. Yeah. And he was talking about Arctic Monkeys, well, like killed the NME when Arctic Monkeys came on the scene and he, he went to see them at a gig. And all the fans knew the worst of the songs before him. And he knew then that that was the end of NME because obviously MySpace was a hungry then. So what's your kind of opinions on that? Well, I mean, he's I, got a point in terms of um, there was a time kind of early noughties when um, there was a kind of decisive... Uh, you know, a decision was made by someone at the enemy, someone somewhere at the enemy, that we would aim for a slightly younger readership. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that then coincided with the fact that the younger people were the first people to get on the internet and, and they were so poor because of all of the student fees, etc. that they, they, they were looking for more stuff for free. And so, so yes, um, when the Arctic Monkeys comes, came along and they were kind of the first or one of the first... Um, uh, you know, MySpace hits and people sort of sharing the music online. I don't know if that was—I don't know if that was the end of the enemy. But I mean, obviously, the enemy is still going strength to strength online. But mm-hmm. um, in terms of the music print press, to a degree, I mean, it was—it was—it was the thin end of a wedge that was going to yeah. affect everybody. Um, I mean, I think to a degree, um, a bigger impact was that the internet allowed people to hear stuff that we were hyping very very quickly and so that meant that you know we could no longer get away with bunging a band that was rubbish on the cover yeah because they you know um because people would immediately go online and go oh you know this band is rubbish why are they, they just put them on the cover because they look good you know i cite the horrors really as the you know mm-hmm. a band that looked good but sounded dreadful uh, you know that would be a, a situation where people would sort of go hang on why, why, <laughs> why are they why are they telling me to listen to this um but uh, yeah, I mean, in terms of you know the end of the enemy, I mean, it's not the enemy still still thriving really yeah. um, in, in the on, in the online world. I mean, it's huge. Well, I can just remember I had I used to buy the legislative week. I don't get the wrong. I bought Melody Maker as well. Um, and when I was a teenager back then, um, thank God that. My house never went in fire or anything like that because the place would be not in flames with the amount of magazines that were in my room. But <laughs> it's, it's, I'd be read online from time to time, but it's kind of, it's not the same as it is having a physical magazine. I love but I loved having the front covers of the magazines where I had all the Libertines ones, all the Strokes ones, and all the, the view. They were like mm. my kind of bands of that kind of era. Have you got, have you got any? Libertine stories. Libertine stories. Well, um, I mean, I was on the last tour before they uh, broke up the first time. It must have been two thousand and three, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that was pretty wild. Um, we certainly. Uh, it was a tour where um, they'd had to hire a couple of bouncers, one for Pete and one for Carl, not yeah. because they were getting mobbed by fans, although they were, but because uh, they needed to, some people, someone to keep them, keep them apart. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they wouldn't, they wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't lamp each other. Um, yeah. I mean, that was a pretty hedonistic tour. I remember being on the, I think we got to Birmingham. I can't remember where we started. I feel, I feel like we started in Glasgow. Um, 
and maybe came down the country. But uh, I remember, maybe no, we must be Manchester. No, we're in Birmingham, and uh, in the bar after the gig in the hotel, and you know, Pete, everyone was there drinking, and then suddenly Pete's disappeared, and everyone was like, "Where's Pete gone?" And and he's gone. Oh, we've gone to London to collect some washing. Oh, it's from collect some washing, is it right? Okay, come to London. He's gone all the way to London to collect some washing. Okay, um, and then there was a story. I wasn't in the hotel room, but in Manchester, I think there was a story the photographer told me he was there and of Pete sort of picking up a, a TV and trying to throw it out the window, but the window was sort of, you know, what you couldn't you couldn't open it. It was just a plate glass window, and so uh, I think maybe maybe the thing bounced off. I, I mean, I, I was writing about the the tour, so I phoned up the hotel to see if that was true, and they. They told me the no TV had been thrown out the window that day, but <laughs> but so I don't know. But yeah, I mean that was that was pretty wild. I mean I get I'm getting really great with Carl. He's a lovely bloke. Um, mm. I remember, sort of ramp, did a bit of rampaging around LA with him at one point. But yeah, I mean that's kind of the most memorable Libertines yeah. time for me. I think. It's just so many journalists I've heard and they've talked about trying to get an interview with Pete, and you could be like two days following him about and. Like, then he'll be like, at five o'clock in the morning, I'm ready to do an interview now. It yeah. must be such hard work. Yeah, I mean, I, I did have a week where I was sort of scheduled to interview him, and it, after about four days of <laughs> chasing him around, I just gave up. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't necessarily bother these days. <laughs> yeah. He's a bit mellow, isn't he? He seems to kind of calm down. Well, it seems so. I mean, I haven't spoken to him for a very long time, but, uh, um, you know, they're, they're all kind of congregated down in in uh, Margate now with their hotel, um, which is nice. You know, it's nice that there's another community growing up there and it's nice that the Libertines might be kind of central to it. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've got no idea. I mean, I know he likes a big breakfast, <laughs> but I don't know. I don't know what he's doing in his, in his, uh, in his uh, hedonistic life. Mm. So, other than the, the NME, obviously, you did work for some papers, the Times and the Guardian and other magazines as well. What sort of work were you doing? Was that kind of music journalism still with them? Or? Yep. Almost, almost exclusively music stuff. Um, I was doing a lot of, uh, I mean, I've been doing, well, I have been doing a lot of um, live, I did 10 years of live reviewing on The Guardian. Mm-hmm. Um, still do bits and pieces for the guardian do a lot more for the independent now which is really great getting to do lots of interviews for them which is um a joy uh yeah and sort of bits and bobs you so as when you go freelance i went freelance in 2008 after something like nine years on staff mm-hmm. um you kind of throw yourself into a different sort of world really i mean when you're a staff writer on the nme i mean it's a, it's a different sort of life especially in the noughties where it's literally you just you roll in of a morning and you get sent somewhere exciting to interview a band and then you you write yeah. that up and then you send somewhere else exciting to do it and you know it's a you, you know you, as i say you know you don't, you don't have to pitch anything it's you're just there to to you know do the work and do it as quickly and best as you can mm-hmm. um and while still having great fun i mean it really was a, a time of life really doing that stuff um, when you freelance, it's a, it's a slightly different world. I mean, the enemy still kept me very busy. Um, thankfully, really appreciate that from them. Um, but when it comes to the national newspapers, you know, you're supposed to be coming up with ideas and, mm-hmm. and pitching them and, and getting them commissioned and, and this sort of thing. And because I was still being um, 
are still in, in demand from the NME. I didn't have much time to put together pitches and, and send them off. So I, I was, you know, I'd basically sort of do the stuff that I was asked to do. Um, so that was really, you know, that was really good fun. I also enjoyed getting into a bit of um, travel journalism. I did some, uh, still do do some um, in-flight magazines, which is really great right. fun. Because I mean, that, um, I mean, part of the, part of the reason I got into music journalism, I think, is because there was a lot of travel involved, and I, I, I love the yeah. idea of of um, seeing the world a bit. You do tend to find in music journalism, you get to see bits, particular bits of the world, and those are the bits that bands tour to. So. Yeah, you know, I've done a lot of America and a lot of Europe, and so that sort of thing is quite exciting. And it's part part of the excitement of it is not knowing where you're going to be next. Right. Um, it's been an interesting sort of uh, dilemma in terms of lockdown because I'm used to doing my job on the go, and I'm used to doing it um, you know, if not on planes, then on a train going to this gig or um, or you know in a field at this festival or whatever you're used to not you're not really used to sitting in one place and, and working or you're, or you're going to this hotel to interview this pop star or whatever and during lockdown it's been you know in the same i'm sitting exactly the same place talking to you as mm-hmm. yesterday i sat and talked to bobby gillespie and you know the other month i, I spoke to uh, mitchell and webb and then you know clicked over an hour later i'm talking to um i don't know a king of leon you know what i mean it's <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's quite samey. It's, I mean, I, I, it's, it might be that I can, you can squeeze more interviews into a day doing this, but you do realise that it's work when you sort of sit down and just looking at in the same room doing 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 it all day. Who else have I spoke to this week? Um, I'm not sure I've done many. I, I spoke to Jenny Beth last week for the same piece, mm-hmm. um, but it can be um, it can be sort of odd, especially sort of doing these. I was doing these internet Zoom interviews because yeah. one minute you're, you're talking to one of the doors and the next minute you're, you're um, talking to, you know, one of talking heads. It's like yeah. a very bizarre sort of experience. So was it in the garden that you interviewed the, was it the full band of Rolling Stones or just Keith Richards? That was for NME. Um, and it was just Keith Richards, yeah. It was done and it was, that interview mm. was done. Um, it was every year at uh, the NME, the NME had an umbrella company, um, which at the time was called IPC and went through various names after that. Mm-hmm. Um, and they would have an annual award ceremony. And so they'd, they'd bus us all down to a, usually the Dorchester and give us all a lot of uh, a dinner and a lot of drink and, and hand out awards for various things. And so, um, so that interview was done at that event. Um, on the phone in some back room, I had to sort of duck out from the right. from the um, from the awards to to do this in this sort of twenty five minute phone with with Keith. Mm-hmm. And obviously, it became kind of world famous interview for kind of the content that came for it. And Keith Richards said that he snorted his dad's asses. Yeah. Um, so there was a bit of kind of looking back on it on the internet, there was kind of about bet Dubai, about whether they said that and all that, was there? Yeah, yeah, he did. I've, I've got the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's not gone anywhere, that tape. I mean, he's, um, uh, I mean, the thing about it is, um, he wasn't quite, he's, he's said, he's, you know, he's confirmed it since that he, he mm-hmm. you know, he did what his dad's ashes. I mean, he was quibbling over the, uh, his, his, his um, query with the quote was that it, 
whether it was with drugs or not, basically. Right. There with, um, he, he didn't, you know, he didn't want it to sound like he'd, he'd taken drugs. Now, you know, I, I had, well, you know, the Rolling Stones make an awful lot of money on tour, you know, and they certainly make an awful lot of money touring in America. They're one of the biggest grossing bands in the world. Um, and, you know, and my job is to get sort of funny um, sort of quotes and interesting quotes out of rock stars. Um, mm-hmm. So for me, it's more important that, it, that it's confirmed that he snorted his dad's ashes than he did it with, with drugs in. Um, you know, I've got the tape. I've gone back and listened to it. I'm quite prepared. You know, I'm not in the business of trying to ruin the Rolling Stones touring yeah. career. I'm quite prepared to, you know, uh, you know, not not necessarily reveal precisely the wording that he said, but it was uh, <laughs> it was written in the magazine. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, did he take the nap about it? Like, is it kind of is it kind of soured the relationship? Um, well, I mean, with the Rolling Stones, you don't. It's not like we we go out drinking with the Rolling. I mean, it'd, it'd, it'd mm. be nice to think we did, but we, you know, a lot of us as journalists don't go out drinking with with Mick Jagger all the time. Um, so um, I don't know if it's. I don't think it soured the relationship. I mean, I, I suspect I wouldn't be asked to interview Keith again. I think we kind of over the course of of that breaking, a certain certain sort of mutual respect um, was eventually built. Because I mean, mm-hmm. it was. Um, obviously, not particularly happy with the, with uh, not so much the quote really, but the way it was picked up and and um, the way it was on the cover of the mirror and and, yeah. and that sort of thing. Well, that, that's that's the thing with, with these things, like if whatever publication, like if it's an NME, then you get the tabloids that just kind of take the bones of the story and kind of make up the rest, don't they? Anyway, so I mean, um, you know. They, took, they basically took that quote and they put it on the front cover of the, of the mirror, and that was that was that was obviously that was a huge surprise to me because, as far mm. as I was concerned, I've got a, a funny and an interesting story to add to the the um, Rolling Stones legend, and and that worked great. And there it was a sort of a little funny thing to put in the enemy, um, but when it's on the cover of a the mirror, it becomes a different thing in terms of, yeah, you know, Keith's mum was very ill at the time, and um, and. You know, and she would have been quite upset by something like that. And so, you know, she wouldn't necessarily have read the enemy, but she would almost certainly would have read the mirror. And so, I think you know, there was a there was a certain fury around it, and and a certain you know, there's an upset within the camp because of that sort of thing. And you know, the worry worries about touring and and worries about Keith's mum, which is all very very valid sort of stuff. Um, so yeah, um, but we, yeah, I think we kind of reached a certain mutual respect with it because I went on the Today program. On, on the day it was out in the mirror and um and basically sort of defended him in terms of you know they yeah. were trying to build it up into a how shocking is this that someone could snort their dad's ashes and i was just like well you know he's he's here keith richards has put on the, this earth to snort everything he possibly can and, <laughs> and i said to him you know if, if i hope he's still around when i go so he can snort a bit of me and i think that kind of silence <laughs> that silence the whole thing you know i kind of pointed out that it was a, a mark of respect to be snorted by keith richardson I think um, they, I think that that kind of helped the story go down a bit better with them. I think. Yeah, um, that's crazy. yeah, it's a, it's a weird one, and uh, you know, I, I do wonder what to do with the tape. Really, probably nothing. But it's, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think I think the the quibble. It, 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 ultimately, it became a bit of a quibble over it rather than uh, a huge sort of falling out. Really. Mm. So, 
Uh, moving on again for that, you've done quite a few biographies for bands mm-hmm. and artists. So, obviously, a lot of the bands we spoke about have been Britpop bands, guitar bands, blah, blah, blah. But you've done Kanye West and, and Jay-Z, done yeah. books about them. So, was that, again, your idea or was, did somebody approach you or was that of these people that you were interested in? Well, these were, I mean, there are people I was interested in, but not necessarily people I knew very much about when I started writing about them. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a, my first book was on Muse, who I, I knew an awful lot about because I'd written almost everything about Muse since, <laughs> since the beginning. So um, I was approached to do a, a Muse book and, and did that, and that, that did quite well. Um, so the publisher um, obviously wanted to offer me more um, more books to do so um and it was very much sort of they the publisher wanted books on you know the next one they, they wanted a book on jay-z so um you know i wasn't exactly the biggest hip-hop expert but i i do find i do think i'm fairly conscientious so i uh, i really dug into it and it was uh, a herculean effort really because there's an awful lot of music and an awful lot of lyrics to go through and um, yeah. i had i had interviewed jay-z so i did uh, have a, a certain amount of um, personal things to draw on and yeah but it, it was I, I think it, even though it's, it wasn't exactly my speciality I think I managed to pull it off fairly well with Jay-Z because um, you know his fan base are, are, are pretty down on stuff mm-hmm. you get wrong I think in, in, from that entire book I think I only, I, people only pulled up sort of three or four things that weren't accurate and this yeah. is a book that really goes deep into um, you know all of the releases all of all of the um myriad of of sort of you know mixtapes and, and yeah. white and all sorts of stuff that he put out well um, the one all the reviews was... that i've seen of it as well all the reviews on amazon um there's not a bad review you know what i mean they'll say in, in terms of jay-z books this is the best one and things like that so yeah well, that's nice it did um uh it was an education in terms of the lexicon of, of rap for me mm-hmm. um so I mean, I got, I got, I think I was near the end of it before I realised that cheese meant money. Right. Um, I had to go back and go because I've written all this stuff about. Oh my god, he really wants cheese. This guy loves <laughs> this house full of cheese. He, you know, he really, really, you know, he's got to get some sort of dairy intolerance. But um, yeah, but there's only a couple of bits like that uh, in terms mm. of of me, me in my education on on hip hop during that. But it was great. It was great. I enjoyed doing that. Right, and did that then lead you into the Kanye one? Then is that kind of well, I did, I did Jay Z, and then I did um, the Bonnie well. um, and Bonnie and then I, I kind of by the end of Bonnie I was a bit like, okay, I'm, you know, I'd like to do one that, that I'd like to do, and mm-hmm. uh, so I pitched for the Killers, and that was really good um, because uh, they gave me some time basically, so I got to go through. Um, you know, they got involved with it, and I got uh, lots of interview time with with members of the band, which is was fantastic. And, I, and I, again, I've worked with them quite a lot over the course of uh, their career, and so I had a lot to draw on from uh, from old interviews and things. And um, and that was that I really loved. Um, the, and the Kanye one was the next one. Again, it was um, the um, the publisher wanted a Kanye book, and so. I, I, I was like, okay, let's do a Kanye book. And I kind of do- dived into that and I was a bit more sort of au fait with everything. Um, mm. 
but that kind of burnt me out a little bit the Kanye one because I, I got to about you know you aim at about 100,000 words for these books and, and I mm -hmm. got that far and I'd reached about 2010 in the story and the book came out in 2015 so it was only about sort of four or five years left to to sort of cram into the thing I thought okay I can I can pile through this but in 2010 that was when he when um, Kanye started going out with Kim Kardashian right. so suddenly research involved a vast amount of daily mail in, um, pieces about you know they're all oh, they're going out they're holding hands they're not holding hands there's a scandal here you know every day the daily mail had to write two or three stories about kim and kanye and and i had to read them all i, had, I read every single thing written about kim and kanye um and it was uh, it was painful it really was painful and and uh and, and you know the book dragged on to about 180,000 words in the end. And they, um, people, you know, I've I've, um, I've had I've had some good responses from it, and um, I'm, I'm glad I did it. But I think at the end of it, I sort of I literally looked up from that from writing that book, and I was it was my stag do, and I was like, oh, I'm getting married in a week, and I had no idea what was happening at the wedding because <laughs> I was just so head down on this book for the last three or four months of it. So that kind of did burn me out a bit in terms of writing long long form works right. and I, I kind of decided at that point I wasn't going to do another um, music book and unless I unless it was something I really wanted to do um, and I kind of I needed a break from it really I'd done yeah. like one every year for about four or five years so I've started, I threw myself back into a novel um, which as I say is sort of four years in or something now and, and approaching a, approaching the final furlong right. um, and then after that, maybe I'll, I'll look around. There's a few people I'd like to do. I mean, I'm, I'm talking to Damon Orban quite soon, and I think he's, if I'm going to, if I'm going to sort of do a profile on anyone, yeah. um, I think he's he's been so pivotal and and so um, influential on a lot of things over the last sort of twenty or thirty years that I think I'd, he'd be very much mm. something I'd, I might suggest him to. But yeah, I'm, I'm, it's not not in the forefront of my mind doing another big book at the moment. Yeah, well, if you did, man, I'd look forward to that. The Demon Album, man, I'd, I'd look forward to that. That's what I was going to um, kind of touch on next was over the last couple of weekends, obviously, we've been running about Glastonbury time. Obviously, the iPlayers had lots and lots of content, so I was watching the live at Worthy Farm. Did you see that? Um, um, the one that they put the um, the one that they put out for. Uh, instead of the festival this year. Yeah, so they yeah, had yeah, like yeah. Um, Coldplay, they had Damon Albarn on it. Um, yeah. They were all kind of special sets, man. It, it was really, really good. I was just going to kind of touch on that, whether you'd seen that and if you get any inside info and what, what we could expect for Glastonbury 2022 if you're... Um. Well, I don't think anyone's got any inside info on it. Um, I did a blog the other week about, you know, the possibilities of what could, mm -hmm. who could be there, and it's literally pretty much everyone. I mean, everyone that's, um, everyone that's a major, uh, you know, a, a headliner for for Glastonbury for the last sort of ten or fifteen years. Pretty much all of them have put records out since since the last Glastonbury. Mm -hmm. So the choice is probably endless in terms of who they could have on. Um, I would hope to see Paul McCartney back again. Um, because he was one of the best shows I've ever seen there. Right. Come back in 2003. Um, um, I suspect probably Taylor Swift will still be on the bill. Um, there's talk of uh, Diana Ross 
Um, it's a legend. I mean, yeah, legend slot. I mean, for heaven's sake, none of this is in any way. I mean, it's all speculation. But I'm, you know, well, I'm taking all that straight to the sun, and the sun will be, will be plenty <laughs> tomorrow. And, and obviously, everyone's sort of saying Elton has has got a suspicious gap in his in his tour mm-hmm. next year. Um, but you know, there's so many other bands that could, could do it. I mean, you know, if, even if sort of set aside. Um, you know, major acts that, that are like the Killers and Kings of Leon that, that have done an awful lot. I mean, there's Cold, Coldplay have got another mm-hmm. record. Um, Ed Sheeran's got another record out. Um, you know, there's going to be an Adele record quite soon. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's every, every sort of major act could really come yeah. through, you know, with Biro. I mean, so many, so many bands and so many and. I think you know they could they could they could put a sort of pyramid stage headliner on every single stage yeah. next year, and I, I think they should. Um, and yeah, well, as I was saying, there's lots of grime acts. I mean, Kano was fantastic at that um, on that uh, streaming show. Um, yeah. So he's got to be stepping up quite soon. I'd have thought. I mean, there's, there's an awful lot, awful lot of uh, big acts queuing up. I'd imagine. Well, that's, that's like see after seeing Kano, I'd forgot all about him really because it's all Stormzy and Dave. That's the the two main ones now, isn't it? But like just seeing Kano back up there, I thought he kind of bossed it, man. I thought between him and Damien Albarn were the two best performances at the at the Worthy Farm. And top of that, what kind of is there any new bands that you're into that you could maybe? Let us know about just kind of break a couple of bands for us. Um, I'll tell you what, I'm going to have a look at what I've been playing recently. Um, I mean, Wolf Alice aren't really new enough for this, are they? Um, I really like the disc record. Um, that's really great. Um, I like Bieber Doobie. Um, I'll have a look at my... Um, the Francis Lung record's good, but Francis Lung was in... Um, Woo Life, so I don't know if it's that, that's particularly new enough. I always, I always sort of stumble over this question because I can never really remember <laughs> what I've been listening to. Who have I been listening to? I really like there's some really good stuff by Joywave that I really like. Spelling, new spelling records, really good. Just get, I'm going to take all that away in Spotify at the night. I'm going to be. I can't remember what I've been listening to. Who I liked? Yeah, I'd, I'd need a, I'd need. A, Bit more prep to come up with a proper list. Yeah, that's not- fine. That's fine. As I said, um, obviously the podcast called Time for Heroes, and I asked you to pick some heroes to come for dinner, which we're probably, I don't know, I'd imagine some of them we've discussed already, but if you just want to get into some detail here, who you would invite them for dinner and what you would meet them as well, if you're a good well, I mean, I'd kind of, I'd want someone that I knew there. Um, so I, um, I, I decided I'd go for um, Matt Bellamy because Matt's a really, I mean, just really great company, really, and uh, and a fascinating guy, especially at times like this when there's all these conspiracy theories flying around. Mm-hmm. And it was something that he used to be into quite a lot, and has since kind of drawn back from a bit. And was, uh, so I think he'd have quite a lot of insight into the mentality of. The people that are really go like buying into all these, all these various theories, and it's always fascinating to talk to about what he thinks is going on in the world. I, I, I love I love speaking to Matt about that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, 
what would I cook him? Um, probably some sort of space food. Uh, what do astronauts eat? It would have to be in a tube. It would probably, it'd probably be sort of firework flavoured, like space food in a tube that they eat. Right. Um, like that. Uh, so Matt would be there because if you're going to invite a load of you know, people that you, you don't know around, you, you want some sort of, someone to fall back on that you know is, is a decent person. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and then in terms of, uh, they can be alive or dead, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, in terms of my literary here, my literary hero, um, is a guy called John Hawkes. Now, he's not, not very well known. Right. Um, but he um, he's, uh, or he was a... Um, uh, American started off as a kind of a poet and then sort of started writing in the 50s uh, in America and it was very sort of left field and um, but really really dreamlike writing um, mm-hmm. kind of king off from uh, Faulkner and stuff like that um, but even going even further into sort of nightmare realities and things like that uh, he did a, a book called The Lime Twig and, and as, as a when I'm writing fiction I always have to have a copy of it nearby just to sort of pick it up and remember how to write a sentence because right. um, I mean every single sentence in the book is just phenomenally like phenomenally carved mm. um, so I'd like him there just so I can just ask him how to, how to write a sentence how he goes about doing it um, unfortunately he's not with us anymore um, uh, and what would I, what would I if I was going to cook him something it'd have to be something fairly sort of sticky and pungent but judging by his uh, his descriptions of all food and smelling of eggs Right. Um, I don't know what that would be, but probably a sticky and pungent egg. <laughs> and then I'd go for, in terms of musical heroes, I mean, I, have, I say I haven't met, but um, I'd like Black Francis, um, just as you know, one of the people that really did change my life in terms of the music. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've interviewed, I've interviewed um, Charles uh, on several occasions. I did, did the Pixies biography not too, re- not too long ago. Um, and so I've interviewed him a lot on the phone. But in person, I've been sort of in his in his sphere, but not actually sort of had a conversation with him. And right. it's kind of you know how it is with heroes. It, it's like how, how how would that how would that go if I actually had a conversation with uh, yeah. Black Francis? I'm not. I'm a little bit worried about doing that for that very reason. But you know, he's he's all in, he's well. He certainly used to be into his sort of uh, aliens, UFO stuff, and mm-hmm. um, and his. Um, I'm still clearly into his mythology and things like that. I just think he'd be a fascinating guest in terms of future and past of conversation. Um, what would I cook him? I think he'd probably like something a bit, um, uh, probably sort of uh, Latin American spicy, probably like a Vesuvio pizza or something like that. Right. Spicy hot pizza, probably like that. Um, and then the last one I go for is... Um, Victoria Corin Mitchell, right, <laughs> and, uh, who is a hero of mine. And not, you know, she's obviously very intelligent and and funny and a great writer. But it's not because of any of that, but because um, I'm a keen poker player, and um, and I think maybe people sort of know that um, Victoria Corin Mitchell plays did poker. She, yeah, did she know of, when the upper competition or something like that long ago? Just win one. This is this is why she's my hero. She won. <laughs> She won a, uh, a what's called an EPT, uh, European Poker Tour thing. And what that is, I mean, it's phenomenally. I, I mean, you think England winning the Euros is a big deal, but I mean, this is like a thousand people. Some of the, you know, the best poker players in in Europe, and a lot of poker players in the world 
travel around following these these tournaments. Right. Uh, so a thousand people sit down to play this game, and you know it's a it's a it's an achievement of a lifetime to win one of one of these mm-hmm. things. You could you know, the patience you've got to play for five days, six days, just playing top notch poker for the whole time. Um, it's draining. You've got to get lucky, and you've got to be brilliant. And to win one of them, as I say, is, is an achievement of a lifetime. Victoria Cora Mitchell was the first person ever to win two EPTs. And that is, just blows my mind. You know, I'm someone that goes to casinos and, and plays against 100 people. And I know how, you know, <laughs> I win one of those maybe once every sort of four or five months or whatever. But right. to win two EPTs is, is beyond comprehension. And so she's an absolute hero to me for that. Um, and more would I cook her... Um, Oh, but she's a poker player, so just give her some chip sticks. <laughs> That's brilliant, man. They're brilliant choices and um, completely different for anybody else I've had on. Thank you very much for um, coming on my podcast. No worries. I hope some of it was interesting. I hope you all enjoyed this episode of Time for Heroes podcast. If you would like to get in touch, the best way is on the Facebook page, Time for Heroes Podcast, or on Instagram at Time for Heroes Podcast, or Twitter at Time for Heroes P1, or drop me an email at Time for Heroes Pod at gmail.com. You'll find Time for Heroes on all podcast platforms, including Spotify, Apple, Google and Amazon. Please leave a review where you can, share with others and more importantly, enjoy.